Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Dustin. And it's good to see everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Faith Bible Church. Uh, We are in week two of a sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. Uh, We're calling this series Rebuilding Your Future. Uh, The title of my sermon this morning is The Prayer of the Cupbearer. So make your way to Nehemiah chapter one. Uh, Mark is in Chicago this morning preaching at uh, the Moody Church. So a few weeks ago, he got a call from Erwin Lutzer to come and preach at Moody. Uh, That is not an opportunity you turn down. Uh, Moody is a historic church in our country and just a really neat opportunity uh, for him. I told him, I said, I'll go do it, Mark. We're going to be starting this series in Nehemiah. Uh, He said, no, I'm going to let you take care of that, and I'll uh, I'll go up to Chicago and and teach at Moody. So let's pray for him this morning uh, as as the Lord brings him to mind uh, that he would have a, a fruitful time. Uh, with his ministry there. I remember being in college. This was the mid-90s, so lots of flannel and baggy jeans back in that day. And at that time, I was really beginning to own my Christian faith. I was beginning to take things like doctrine and my quiet time seriously, beginning to read good books, beginning to share my testimony. And what I didn't realize at the time was that God was doing some serious work to move me toward vocational ministry. But I went to a state university. I did not go to a Bible college. I had no real design to attend seminary at that point. And so much of my discipleship, sad to say, was self-directed. But I had some high school friends who were at a Bible college nearby, and they, se- they seemed to take their faith very, very seriously. And I found out that they had challenged one another to pray for an hour every morning. And I secretly thought at the time, well, that's why I didn't go to Bible college. I mean, an hour each morning, who are you people? I sleep in the morning, whether it's in class or out of class. That's what the morning is for, for sleeping, not for praying. But I felt this challenge to keep up with them. So whether through some measure of guilt or perhaps pride, I thought if being a serious Christian means praying for an hour every morning, then that's what I'm going to do. And the trend was to keep a journal, so I found a journal and began putting forth the effort to pray for an hour every day. And I wish I could could tell you that my my efforts got off the ground. I wish I could say that, that weeks into the practice, I was communing deeply with God and seeing prayers answered, and and my roommates were just in awe of my discipline. But none of that ever happened. I couldn't do it. I could scarcely reach 15 minutes. An hour was unthinkable. So spiritually defeated, I gave up. And ever since then, I've carried around this sort of low-key guilt that my prayer life is uninspired and weak. Even with seasons where prayer rhythms were very, very intense, and being in church leadership where a big part of what I do is pray for the body, I've always felt like prayer was a bit like cardio, that, that part of my spiritual workout where I just didn't have much going on. And it's been the words of Martin Luther that, that have always resonated with me at some level, but one thought that he had on prayer has been particularly strong. He said, if you want to humble a man, ask him about his prayer life. Anybody with me on that? And I say all that to say this, I don't stand up here this morning teaching on prayer as someone with exemplary credentials. I struggle with much of this. I skip a lot of this. I simply forget or I look up in the midst of my labor and I go, oh my, I haven't even prayed. 
So if you want to humble a man, ask him about his prayer life. If you really want to humble a man, ask him to teach or preach on prayer. <laughs> but as Mark explained in his introduction last week, last week, the book of Nehemiah, it falls into three divisions. The first six chapters cover the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem. Chapter 7 through 10 deal with the renewing of Jerusalem's worship, and then the final few chapters address the repopulation of the city and the revival that takes place amongst God's people. And within all of that, prayer is one of the book's overriding themes. And you gather this by reading the book through. You gather that prayer is a central activity in the life of Nehemiah. The prayer in chapter 1 that we're going to look at this morning is the first of 12 different prayers recorded in this book. This book, it begins with prayer in Persia. It closes with prayer in Jerusalem. Nehemiah's prayers are filled with adoration in chapters 8 and 9, with thanksgiving in chapter 12, with, with confession in chapters 1 and 9, with petition in chapters 1 and 2. There are prayers of anguish, of joy, protection, dependence, commitment, this is a story of compassionate, persistent, personal, and corporate prayer, which is why the book starts the way it does. It starts with this model prayer. And so let's read it together. Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm actually going to begin in verse 4, though the prayer begins in verse 5. Let's read God's inspired word. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them... Though you're dispersed be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. So before we get into outlining this prayer, there are two preliminary comments I'd like to make about it. First, realize this is a distillation or a summary of Nehemiah's four months of weeping and fasting and praying. Last week at the start of chapter 1, we read that it's the month of Kislev. Next week, as we get into chapter 2, when, when Nehemiah makes his appeal to King Artaxerxes, at that point, it's going to be the month of Nisan. So early winter to the middle of spring is the time frame represented in the mentioning of those two months. 
And it's in that span that Nehemiah is doing a lot of praying. And the passage I just read is his summary of that season of prayer. And so secondly, in light of the fact that I just mentioned, what we read here is Nehemiah's final form of prayer, not his first form of prayer. And what that means is oftentimes the first prayer that we offer for some burden or cause, it isn't always the most coherent, is it? We very often are desperate or we're emotionally charged or we simply lack wisdom. So the first form of our prayers are like this burst of energy. They just go every which way. But over time, as we pray and pray and and pray for something, God has a way of refining our prayers. They become more coherent. They become more scripturally saturated, more aligned with God's sovereignty. They get refined Over a period of time, God refines our prayers because he is refining us through our prayers. I heard a pastor say, prayer is not a crowbar trying to open the blessings of God. Prayer is a chisel in God's hands being used to make you into what he wants you to be. Therefore, to neglect prayer is to miss its transforming effects on your heart and on your life. Let's get into the outline. I'm starting with some of what we covered last week. Point one is Nehemiah's concern about the problem. The problem is, of course, the city of Jerusalem, it is in ruins. Exile has removed God's people from their promised land. Those deportations began in 605 BC. By 586, Jerusalem has been utterly destroyed by the Babylonians. Then after about 70 years in exile, following the the Persian overthrow of Babylon, a remnant of Jews under the leadership of Zerubbabel and then Ezra, they are allowed to return to Jerusalem. It's Zerubbabel who organizes the temple's reconstruction and Ezra who renews the people's commitment to the scriptures and to worship. But the city, the city is still in shambles. It's defenseless. It has no walls. It's not even half the place that it once was. Its people are also half-hearted and broken down in their commitment to the Lord. And here's Nehemiah. This man who's been born in exile, he's he's the cupbearer to the king of Persia. He's living a life of relative ease and opulence. He's a Jew who has never once set foot in Israel. A man who has never witnessed the temple function or, or seen the people of God dwelling in their land of promise. This man, 800 miles away from Jerusalem in, in Susa, in the Persian capital, he, he's comfortable. He's provided for. He, he has a position of influence and honor. But he is just undone by this news that he gets from his brother Hanani. He's unraveled by the report that the people back in Jerusalem, they are in trouble and the walls are broken down. Why? Why the dramatic response of of weeping and fasting and, and grief from Nehemiah? Why does he feel this strongly? The answer is because Nehemiah knew the Jews were God's covenant people. He knew Jerusalem was God's covenant place, and neither the people of God nor the city of God is portraying the greatness and the beauty and the faithfulness of the Lord our God. 
The, the condition of the people and the ruin of the city in Nehemiah's mind is bringing reproach on the Lord. And Nehemiah is just broken by this and he begins to weep. Unless you think Nehemiah is some softy, and so that's why he's moved to tears. Think again, think again. This is the same guy who at the end of the book, he's so upset at the way God's people are, are intermarrying with foreigners and, and taking on the pagan customs and, and repeating the sins of the past that he starts confronting people. You read chapter 13, he, he starts beating people up and pulling out their hair. This is no softy. Nehemiah is a guy with a passion for God's glory. And at the news that God's glory is at stake, he is driven to his knees. What drives you to your knees? What unravels your heart? What dominates your prayers? Because here's the truth. Tell me what you pray about, and I'll tell you what you care about. Tell me what you pray about, and I'll tell you what you care about. Is God's glory what you care about? Is the fame of God on this earth of importance to you? Is the fate of two billion people in unreached people groups around the world with no access to the gospel, is that an unraveling thought? Or how about one billion lost and dying Muslims? Does that just break your heart and drive you to pray? I'm not saying you shouldn't pray for personal problems. I'm not saying your health or your kids or your, your finances shouldn't be into, of importance to you. Those are things you care about. Those are things you should pray about. But is there anything else? Is there anything you pray about that isn't directly connected to you having a better quality of life? Is there? One question I often ask myself what am I praying for that's not tied to me being happier or more comfortable? What am I praying for that's not me focused? If I can't name anything, I need to take some inventory. I need to seek the heart of God and ask, Lord, what is important to you? That's what Nehemiah has done. His burden is God and his people being in relationships. He knows that this is important to God. Time and time again, God's covenant faithfulness has proven his great love, but Israel, in its persistent disobedience, rebels against that love and faithfulness, and Nehemiah is yearning for restoration. That's what he wants to see happen. Building a wall begins with weeping over the ruins. And you can apply that to this book. You can apply that to your life personally. You can apply that to your family. Whatever the walls that need to be rebuilt in your life look like, it starts with weeping over the ruins, with great concern over the problem. And that's what gets us to this beautiful prayer. Second point, look how the prayer starts. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great an awesome God. So as Nehemiah approaches the throne of grace in prayer, he knows that this is not a genie in a bottle. This is not a doting grandfather who likes to hand out lollipops. This is not a gumball machine where you put in your prayer quarter and out comes an answer. This is a great and awesome God. 
So prayer does not begin with the believer going into the presence of God and saying, Lord, here I am. But instead, it starts with the believer going in and saying, Lord, there you are. You're the Lord God of heaven. That phrase is going to be repeated throughout the book. And I know I refer to my kids as awesome or as a game, or a game being awesome or a good book or movie being awesome. I completely overuse the term. I'm sorry, God, because you, God, you really are the one who is awesome. And Nehemiah needs God to be awesome because he is in Susa, and his great concern is in far-off Jerusalem, but both cities, one rich, the other poor, one strong, the other weak, one proud, the other broken, what Nehemiah is acknowledging here is these two places, these are like tiny specks of dust under the vast canopy of God's heaven. When we go to God in prayer, when we approach him in all of his holiness and all of his glory, all of our problems get put into their proper perspective. Everything is made small when we see him as big. Nehemiah's words remind me of Psalm 99 where David writes, The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. But notice, it's not only the awesome majesty of God that's being acknowledged here. You have alongside God's sovereignty and might, you have Nehemiah seeing God as fundamentally relational. He's the God of the universe, but he's also full of steadfast love. He's attentive and merciful. He's upholding all things by the strength of his power. And at the same time, he sees, he hears, he cares. So this is totally unlike the gods of Babylon or Persia, the created idols, the lifeless statues. This God is alive and self-revealing and faithful to those whose hearts belong to him. And he's holy. And it's Nehemiah's awareness of this that leads him next to confession. He says in verse 6, I pray before you day and night, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So this second step in prayer, this step of confession, it comes because of the first step, because of the acknowledgement of who God is. This is similar to the prophet Isaiah. If you remember the prophet Isaiah in, in chapter 6 of the book that bears his name, the prophet gets a vision of the Lord. The Lord is high and lifted up with these great angelic creatures encircling him, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, 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 and Isaiah is just ruined by this scene. And his response to God in that moment is, I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And so the consistent pattern of Scripture is when people dwell on the awesome attributes of God, when they look up to his majesty, that has a way of abruptly causing you to look in at your own depravity. That's what causes Nehemiah to, to, to pivot from, from praise to penitence. Perhaps it's hit him for the first time. Perhaps he's saying, you know, I'm not supposed to be in Susa. 
I'm not supposed to be in service to the king of Persia. I'm supposed to be in Jerusalem. I'm supposed to be serving the king of kings. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I'm here in Susa because of sin. I'm here because of disobedience and judgment. It's like the prodigal son in Luke 15. After squandering his inheritance, he finds himself in a pigsty. He, he, he's starving and broke and wondering how he got there. And then he realizes it's his sin that has him there. It's his sin that has him far from the heart of his father. And in that moment, he comes to his senses, runs back home in confession and in repentance. Nehemiah has come to his senses, and in doing so, he confesses the, the sins of Israel, he confesses the sins of his father, and he confesses his personal sins to God. And this is amazing, because it would have been really easy for Nehemiah just to look back and to blame his ancestors, but instead he looks within, and he even blames himself. You know what it is? It's easier to blame others. It's easier to just sort of just shift things their direction, isn't it? But we need to learn from Nehemiah. We need to, to confess as he honestly does and say, Lord, I'm wrong. I not only want to be part of the answer, but I confess to you I'm part of the problem. Stephen Davey, a pastor in North Carolina, he wrote this about confession. He said, God doesn't run to forgive excuses. He runs to forgive sins. That's true, isn't it? Psalm 51, 17 says, What pleases the Lord is not praise but a broken and contrite heart. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Nehemiah knows that they, in his language, they have acted very wickedly. He doesn't try to candy coat it. He owns it and he calls it what it is. The story is told about some Boeing employees up in Seattle, who decided to, to steal a life raft from one of the 747s that they were working on. They were successful in getting it out of the plant, but they forgot one thing. The raft comes with an emergency locator that is automatically activated when the raft is inflated. So when they took the raft out on the nearby river, they were quite, quite surprised by a Coast Guard helicopter homing in on that emergency locator. They couldn't hide. Their sin was found out. Trying to hide our sins from God is the same way. It's impossible. He knows all about them. Numbers 32, 23 reminds us that you need to be sure your sin will find you out. We need to recognize that, that all sin, those things we have blatantly done or carelessly committed or those things that we have left undone, they need to be identified and they need to be confessed before our holy God. But here's what I know about church people. We're, we're not quick to confess our sins. We think, oh, I, I did that when I became a Christian. I admitted I was a sinner to Jesus. He forgave me, but I'm pretty much, you know, I'm pretty much done with that moving forward. But you need to frame that mentality in the context of prayer. Frame that mentality in the context of this prayer. Nehemiah is going to the God of the universe. He's going to, to the Lord asking for favor and blessing and, and power. He's appealing to his faithful covenant love. What kind of person would do that knowing that they have a massive sin problem that they've never admitted to? There's plenty, actually. 
we're coming up on wedding season. And that means that I'm in the midst of doing a lot of premarital counseling and anymore, unless I know the couple really well, I always have to ask an important question, which is, are you two currently living together? And it's uncomfortable to ask, and I risk consulting them, and, and when they say yes, it gets even more tense. But I ask that because throughout their engagement and throughout their premarital counseling, and then on the day of their wedding, we are pleading with God to bless them and to provide for them and, and to be on their side every step of the way. How can we do that if they're willfully violating what God has designed for marriage? You see the disconnect there? Now, I don't think your justification, if you're a believer in Jesus, I don't think that hinges on your unconfessed sin, but I think your intimacy with God does. I think your prayer life certainly does. You will not commune with God in prayer. You will not be genuine in your requests and your needs before him if you do not continually confess your sins to him. Remember, the Lord is always more eager to forgive than we are to confess. Don't hold back. Don't hold back. I've always liked the story that's told of the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. Charles was raised on a farm. When he was 13, he was behind the family barn one day smoking a cigarette. His dad suddenly appeared, and Charles quickly pulled the cigarette behind him and tried to defuse the situation by saying to his father, Pops, the circus is in town. Do you think we can go? His father said, Son, don't ask your old man for something with smoldering disobedience in your hand. If you want to go to the circus, drop the smoldering disobedience. If you want to see God work, confess your sins. Go humbly before him. Don't be the person who asks God for blessing without examining your heart for disobedience. Nehemiah, he's, he's owned his sins, but then he, he quickly turns to expressing confidence in God's promises. Look at verses 8 through 10. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you are, your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. In this part of the prayer, Nehemiah, he's recalling the words of Moses. The words that speak to the, the danger of Israel's apostasy, but also the promise of divine mercy. His words here are really a skillful tapestry of, of Old Testament warnings and promises. He has quotes from Leviticus and Deuteronomy and 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles and even Psalm 130. Nehemiah clearly knew the scriptures. And so within all of this, what exactly is the promise that Nehemiah is so confident in? Well, there's two, actually. The first is that if Israel disobeyed, they're going to be sent into a foreign land. That promise had been fulfilled. Nehemiah is living in that promise. But the second was that when the captivity was over, God would send them back to Jerusalem. And that's what he's waiting to be fulfilled. And so Nehemiah prays, Lord, this first part is true. 
We've disobeyed, we're in captivity, but, but Lord, you've made this promise to bring us back home, to protect us there, and that's not happened yet. I'm just claiming your promise that you're going to make this happen. Someone has calculated that there are over 7,000 promises in the Bible. And what that means is the better we know the word of God, the better we'll be at praying with confidence in God's promises. Listen to Jonathan Edwards on this. He says, That which makes God, excuse me, that which God abundantly makes the subject of his promises, God's people should abundantly make the subject of their prayers. So Nehemiah's confidence, even though he's he's fearful in, in, in going into King Artaxerxes, he, he's fearful as cupbearer, as going into the king and saying, King, I I want to leave my job with you to go back and, and rebuild what was destroyed. I want you to sort of let me go of my duties here so I can do that. And, and I want you to pay for it, if that's uh, of any interest to you. Nehemiah's confidence in doing that is God has said that if his people would turn their faces back to him, if they would seek him, he's going to restore them. So he wants to go back, and where's his confidence coming from? It's coming from the word. It's coming from the very promises of God. And so what we see Nehemiah doing in his prayer life is is he's praying through chunks of Scripture. He's letting the word of God roll back up to God. Not because God needs to be reminded of what he has said, but rather he needs to be reminded of what God has said. Apply that to your own life. We need to be reminded of what God has said. A quotation I read this week says this, True prayer is rooted on the promises and covenants of God in his past achievements and in his ability to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. And so with that kind of confidence in God's promises, it's no wonder where Nehemiah lands in this four-month prayer journey. The last point, this commitment to get involved. This intense season of prayer has has led Nehemiah to go and to do the work. It's been said of prayer that it is not getting man's will done in heaven, but but getting God's will done on earth. However, for God's will to be done on earth, he needs people available for him to use. And while Nehemiah was praying, his, his burden for Jerusalem became greater and greater. His vision for what needed to be done became clearer and clearer. And so he doesn't pray that God would send someone else to accomplish the task. He says, again, like Isaiah, here I am, God, send me, I'll go. And within this, he's claiming yet another biblical promise. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. And so as as Nehemiah makes petition, as he says to God, God, give me success, give me mercy in front of this man. What's happened is that his prayers have given him this overwhelming perspective so that as he goes to the king, he doesn't see the king as this high and lofty individual. He simply sees him as another man. Because God is made big in our prayers, and everything else is made small. Someone has said that the key word in this book is the word so, which occurs about 32 different times. Again and again, Nehemiah, he assesses a situation, he is moved to concern, and so 
he is compelled to action. The true measure of our concern is whether or not we're willing to make a commitment to actually get involved. Martin Luther said, pray as if everything depends on God, then work as if everything depends on you. That's Nehemiah. Maybe you've heard the story of the young man who who prayed that he would win the lottery. Now, admittedly, it's foolish to think that God would help you win the lottery, but the story makes a good point, so just bear with me. The man in the story prays each week for many months, promising to to give a substantial portion of his winnings to charity. And after many months of prayer, the man begins to despair that God is not going to answer his prayer. And so he shouts, Lord, aren't you going to help me? And at that point, God responds, young man, you must must meet me me halfway on this one. If I'm going to answer your prayer, you're going to need to purchase a lottery ticket. Nehemiah, he trusts God's sovereignty. He recognizes God's power, but he wants to be a part of God's answer. Our tendency is to pray for miracles, but in most situations, like Nehemiah, it's more appropriate to pray for opportunities. So pray for your kids. But pray God uses you to see them follow Jesus. Pray for your unbelieving friends or coworkers, but pray that God gives you the boldness to share Christ with them. Pray for our Greater Things campaign, but pray God would give you a heart of generosity. Pray for the nations that need to hear the gospel, but say to God, I'm not just willing to go, I'm planning to go and willing to stay. Alan Redpath was the one-time pastor at Moody Church. i got to quote somebody from Moody this morning. He wrote this, Recognition of need must be followed by earnest, persistent waiting upon God until the overwhelming sense of the world's needs becomes a specific burden in my soul for one particular piece of work which God would have me to do. What's the work that God has you to do? Providentially, where has he placed you? What neighborhood are you in? What street are you on? What office do you work at? What class do you sit through? God has placed you there. Just as he placed Nehemiah in in this cup-bearing position to have favor with the king, God has placed you in some area, giving you a burden to do a work that only he would have you to do. Maybe you see the, prog- the progression here in Nehemiah's prayer. His, his concern about the problem has led him to brokenness. While he's weeping and fasting, he expresses his, his praise and his conviction about who God is, about God's character. As he focused on the greatness and awesomeness of his holy God, he's quickly reminded of his own wickedness, and therefore he cries out to God in a confession. And after owning the role of the nation's depravity, he he prays boldly and with confidence in God's promises. And then he's led to commit himself to be involved. There's a parallel to how we respond to the gospel here, I believe. When we hear the gospel faithfully preached, we we get a glimpse of, of who God is. We, we feel and start to understand this brokenness over our sin 
just about how distant we are from God because we've rebelled against him. But at the same time, we have this overwhelming sense of of gratitude as we appeal to his grace and what he has provided to give us forgiveness, the work of his own son, and then then we commit our lives to him. If If you've never walked that progression, if you've never come to Christ in saving faith, seeing who God is, being broken over your sin, throwing yourself down at his mercy and his promises, and committing your life to him, do that today. Don't hold back and do that today. You have a template. You don't need a template. God can sit, sit there and save you where, you where you are. But look to God in saving faith. And if you have trouble remembering this prayer from Nehemiah, it does follow the prayer acrostic that is used by so many of you, that acrostic acts, A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. It starts with adoration. It starts with praise. It moves to confession. Works through thanksgiving. Nehemiah being grateful for the promises of God and then lands with a petition, with supplication. And just remember this. You pray about what you care about. And if you care enough about, excuse me, if you care enough about what you pray about, you'll submit and obey to however God wants to use you to answer the prayers you pray. There was an old pastor named Jack Miller. He said this, he said, you can tell if a man or a woman is really on speaking terms with God by listening to them pray. I pray that we are a church on speaking terms with God, that we're never holding back in our petitions to him and our confessions to him and our adoration of him and in our confidence in his promises. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you now and we thank you for this opportunity to gather in this way. For the blessing that it's been to to praise your great name. For, For the blessing that it's been to confess our need of you because of our sinful condition. For how assuring it's been to to look at your promises and find our confidence in them and not in ourselves. And God, we, we now have thousands of things that we could bring to you, each of us in our own hearts. And so we lay them before you, but at the same time, we submit our lives to you and say, God, wherever you lead us, we'll go. Whatever burden you've given us, we're open to carrying through to completion. We thank you for Christ who completes us, who's the author and the perfecter of our faith. If anyone's here today that's never trusted in him, I pray that they would do that. Pray for Mark and Cheryl as they travel and as, as he ministers this morning. May the word go forth and bear fruit. Pray that for, for this place as well. May you, use your, may you use your spirit to illuminate hearts and minds. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.